Welcome to the Grant Writing and Funding Podcast, where it's all about, you guessed it, grant writing and funding made easy so you can increase capacity, grow funding, and advance your nonprofit or freelance mission. Now, let's hand it over to your host, grants expert and author Holly Rustic, so you can increase your funding and drive impact. Hello, hello, hello. It's Holly Rustic here with Grant Writing and Funding. And I'm here to help you grow capacity, increase funding, and to advance the mission of the nonprofit or the many nonprofits that you may work with if you're a freelancer or a nonprofit consultant. All right, you guys are amazing change makers. And I love calling you guys change makers because that's who you are. So embrace it because you are out there if you're um, a volunteer working with nonprofits, an executive director on the board of directors, a fundraiser, grant writer, freelance uh, grant writer, nonprofit consultant, etc. You guys are all doing amazing things to change the world in a positive way. So I just wanted to give a special just highlight on that as I know I do call you guys change makers but really what does that mean it means all the amazing wonderfulness of who you are all right guys so let's go ahead and get into what are we going to talk about today on the show well I have an amazing guest Mr. Ryan Boyette of the nonprofit to move mountains and this is a really special podcast because um, when we really when we're talking to Ryan today, what you're going to notice is that he has a nonprofit that is based in Sudan, and he has done a lot of work there in the Nuba area. Um, he spent 15 years there, and he even is married to a Sudanese lady from Nuba, and they have two children who were, grew up there, and it's just an amazing story. Um, plus, I get a lot of you guys out there that may operate international nonprofits or you're based, you're not based in the United States, right? So um, you're, a lot of times you're asking me, how do I get funding um, if I can't access federal grants or, you know, how federal U.S. grants, like where, what other kinds of international funding is there out there? So um, definitely we talk about that in today's episode. So you're really going to want to listen to this because he shares with how his nonprofit has been able to pull in different types of funding sources. And he also talks about how he's been able to leverage um, the university where he went and he and his wife went and got their higher education degrees in Nashville. So they were able to leverage Vanderbilt University to pull in interns, researchers, etc. to help with his nonprofit. Um, and your nonprofit doesn't need to be based overseas either for you to leverage this. So even if you have a nonprofit in the United States, um, you can definitely learn a lot and get a lot of great tips from this episode today. So I encourage you to listen to it. And also, before we get into it today, I want to make sure you guys can leverage all of the amazing resources. We have a ton of free resources in our grant writing and funding hub haven. So all in one place, so you don't have to sign up for all of the different things we have and go through different emails to get it. We actually now have put all of the things that we offer whether that's our mini video series grants formula, all the way to our nonprofit health checklist, to five steps to becoming a grant writer, and so, so, so much more. We've put it together in all one beautifully image-like graphic hub. So you can definitely join that for free at grantwritingandfunding.com. Um, you'll definitely wanna be a part of that, and you'll also get updates on the podcast coming out. And if you are um, a prominent listener of the podcast and a subscriber, you know I always sign off with um, asking you guys to leave a review if you love the podcast. So this week I actually wanted to do something a little different and I wanted to read uh, two of the reviews that we got last week. So a big shout out to Tamika and she says, thank you for sharing those seven tips. She loved the seven tips on uh, grant writing um, as she listened to that. And we have another review from G.I. Jane uh, underscore Z.N. who said, so informative, all the information you'll need at your fingertips. Such great episodes. So thank you to Tamika and G.I. Jane underscore Z.N. for leaving those wonderful reviews on iTunes. And I also encourage you guys, if you love the podcast, you're a subscriber um, and you haven't left a review, 
review yet, please do leave a review. I love I love getting the feedback and seeing all the work because we're totally self-funded here at Grant Writing and Funding for this podcast. And it's also great so it helps other people find the podcast the more reviews you have. So thank you so much for that. Um, once again, if you want to go ahead and leave a review, that would be fantastic. And thank you once again to Mika and G.I. Jane for those reviews. Um, awesome. So today we have, like I said, Mr. Brian Boyette coming on. Super excited for all of the links and the show notes for this specific episode. Please go over to grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 204 so you can see how to get in contact with Ryan um, and also some show notes, etc. All the other links, the things that we mentioned from the show. All right, without further ado, here is Ryan Boyette of the nonprofit To Move Mountains. Hello, hello, hello. It's Holly Rustic here with the Grant Writing and Funding Podcast, and I'm here to help you grow capacity, increase funding, and to advance mission. So that might be of the, non- the mission of the nonprofit that you work at, or if you're a freelance consultant, the many different nonprofits you work with. And today on the show, we're going to be talking about a specific nonprofit that will hopefully inspire you guys out there for the work that you do in your nonprofits as well. Um, I'm really excited about this. We were just in the green room. I've got Ryan Boyette here from To Move Mountains, and this is a nonprofit that's actually based in Sudan. So this is really exciting to hear about the education work that's going on there and just to hear about the processes of how Ryan runs his nonprofit. I know a lot of you guys out there have questions about international nonprofits. So we're definitely going to be talking about um, some challenges and solutions that Ryan's had to make this nonprofit go. All right. Thank you. And now guys, welcome to the podcast, Mr. Ryan Boyette. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Holly. Thanks so much for having me on today. Absolutely. I'm super excited. Like I was saying in the green room, we were talking and I was just like, man, this is so exciting. We actually have a lot of similarities. Um, you know, we have right. lived abroad in different places. Um, you know, we have children that have multiple um, different types of ethnicities, which is so mm-hmm. exciting. And I absolutely love that. So yeah, this is a lot of fun to talk about views on education and all of that. But anyways, welcome to the podcast. We're going to be talking about your nonprofit to move mountains. So I want mm-hmm. you to first off, if you could please just kind of Give us what is that nonprofit and what kind of led you to creating it? I'll just give you the floor. Sure, sure. Thanks, Holly. Um, So about, I guess, 18 years ago, I had graduated college and I read an article about war in Sudan. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, this uh, this is crazy. How am I a college graduate? And I've never heard of this war in Sudan. And so I started doing all this research and... And I decided to go to Sudan. Um, I would say it's probably motivated by my faith, um, but I joined a nonprofit working in the region. And I found myself in the middle of the Nuba Mountains in Sudan. At that time, Sudan was one country. And so we're like right smack in the middle of, of Sudan. And when I got there, it was a, during a window of peace. Mm-hmm. And I was just introduced to the most incredible people. Um, that I've met in the world. Uh, and I've traveled the world quite a bit. And the people of Nuba are just so hardworking, resilient people that um, were really trying to stand up for the freedom of, of their, their people and their country. Um, and they were just so resilient in the midst of all this suffering and conflict and oppression. And so I immediately just wanted to continue working there. And um, so I've been there ever since. And wow. uh, I worked for an organization and then during that window of peace, but then uh, we saw like signs that conflict was going to start again. Um, So there was like an interim period and then we were approaching the end of that. um, We could see conflict was about to start. Mm -hmm. So the organization I was working for asked me to leave and and come out of the area with the other staff. Um, At that time I was married, um, I had married in February, 2011, Mm -hmm. and this was in June, 2011. My wife is from the Nuba mountains of Sudan Mm -hmm. and she has lived through war her whole life. And so we talked about it. And um, I remember um, hearing about Nuba and realizing no one had heard about it and I didn't know much about it. So I said, I have to resign. So I resigned from that organization. I started a media organization called Nuba reports. And so we started reporting on this conflict from the front lines to the wow. caves where people dis- were displaced. And I mean, hundreds of thousands of people were displaced. And um, at the beginning of the war, over 70,000 refugees entered South Sudan 
by that time, it was a separate country. Mm -hmm. um, so as, as time went on, we were reporting on this conflict. And as I would, I would go to um, these caves where people were displaced and we would, we would interview them. And I'd, and I'd always ask, um, what's your major need here? And thinking people would say uh, security or food or something like this. Um, I was wrong because every single, almost every time people would say, we need education. Wow. And it, and it kind of like, yeah, Holly, it was, it really surprised me because I, I was like, okay, why? Like, I was kind of frustrated. Like you need food. Like why, why are you saying you need education? But what I realized and from talking to people, they've been in war their whole, like generations and generations of war in Sudan. Mm -hmm. And they would always say, we know what it is to starve. We know what it is to suffer and we want it to stop. And we realize the only way for that to happen is through education. And those were from, those are their words. Um, so they realized so like the systemic issue behind it all, instead of just the immediate need, it was like, no, this needs to be bigger to really exactly. Stop. Wow. That's so interesting. You know, especially I love how you're saying too, you're asking what they need. A lot of times I've seen a lot of Western countries, NGOs go into war-torn areas, um, disaster areas, and just implement what they think is needed. Mm -hmm. And it mm -hmm. just backfires all over and, the place. You know? And I can say, like, I to be very vulnerable, I have, and very honest, I, I definitely learned from my own mistakes. Yep. You know, going in there as a young college graduate thinking, oh, I have this answer to this problem and, and seeing a lot of times it not work. Yep. And just realizing most of the solutions are going to come from the people who live there and have lived through these conflicts their whole lives. Absolutely. Um, I love that. And you have a journalism background as well. So that was able to yeah. help support that. You know what? I'm going to report on the front lines. Like that is so, you know, amazing to bring in your other skills too. Yeah. And what really worked is we, we built up a community of journalists within the region and later throughout Sudan. And we started reporting into other parts of Sudan, which was amazing because people had never seen this conflict. When um, we, we took video and photos. So there's all this evidence. And through that, we got we built a lot of credibility. And then we started bringing in journalists from uh, international journalists. We brought in Nicholas Kristof from The New York Times. We brought in Ann Curry. We brought in Al Jazeera English. Um, I even brought in George Clooney at one point into oh, he's the great. mountains. He's always supporting. Um, and, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so a very, very nice guy. And he was very knowledgeable. He was very well read on the situation and, and he was really there to learn. And, and so was everyone else that came. And um, so through that and, and through hearing the voices of the people, um, it, I always saw the media work as temporary. I always, I, it was always a part of my goal and vision and my wife's to, to, support the development of the people in the area and yeah. what their desires were. So then um, as the war started to slow down, there's, there hasn't been peace signed yet up to now, mm -hmm. but for the past uh, three to four years, there hasn't been any bombing or fighting actively. Um, so it's, there's kind of these front lines. So we thought it's a good time to come out and we wanted to start an organization that addressed this issue, mm -hmm. um, education and conflict. Mm -hmm. And um, this is where you know, we saw a huge gap and a huge desire mm -hmm. um, from the people. So we, we came out of uh, Sudan in 2018 and started to move mountains to, to address that issue. Oh, I love that. And I think, you know, I love what you're saying is once again, just to re kind of state that is getting, asking people what they need and what do you want and, and being a part of that. And even, even that journalism, like you said, because it was, you know, journalism can be very propaganda ish if it's, you know, in, in those kind of terms, um, but because you were opening it up and having more objective journalism, I imagine that's a form of education as well, right? So that's a mm -hmm. real form of people understanding what's really going on. Um, as we all know, the yellow journalism or the fake news can really screw things up. So um, yeah, I love that you guys did that and then really recognize through that process, what is the need? And just, it, it's, it, it just blows me away the strength of the people that you're mentioning. Like, no, we want to end systemic issues. We know what the solution is. And so to move mountains. Yeah. So this is a way then that you can uh, facilitate the conversation of what education, like, are you guys using certain curriculum or is it like, you know, like those kind of like, what's the, the kind of tangible steps behind to move mountains? Sure, that's, that's a really good question. And I think what we provide is um, a process. 
a very important process. And so we have people who are experts on curriculum development and teacher training and, um, and, and different kind of pedagogies that could possibly work and culturally, culturally appropriate pedagogies. But um, so the process that I'm talking about is really being very inclusive of all the voices within Nuba. Nuba is made up of 56 different tribes, 56 oh, wow. different languages. And so you can drive an hour and be in a completely different tribal grouping, but people communicate and get along and they always say that they're Nuba. And so what we did first was have this massive education conference, which uh, we had great representation from men, um, women, men, parents, teachers, students, community leaders, and we brought them all together and we asked them three major questions. There's a lot of activities around the, the, the conference, but the, the questions were, what do you want your children to be like? What do you want them to know? And what do you want them to do by the end of eighth grade? Mm -hmm. And so the parents for the first, I mean, the, the, all these different groups of people for the first time got to define what their education system will equal in the end. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, I would love to develop that for our, for like in the, in the U S right. Yes. And we don't have that opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, the great thing was people were so excited about this because they already saw education as a great need and, and a great um, contributor to freedom in, in their country. Mm -hmm. So they were just so engaged with trying to um, be involved in this conversation. So we did all sorts of activities and showed them different ways of teaching and they were um, very excited. So then since that time, that was um, actually the beginning of this year. We did a lot of research before that. And then so as time goes on, we've been doing different workshops and, and pulling out the history side and the math and the English and the um, English is, is what they've desired. Um, and so talking about all the different subjects and what could possibly um, what, what could be related to their communities and their needs and their desires. So that's the curriculum side. Nice. And then we have teacher training, mm -hmm. which we've been training 25 uh, teachers from Nuba for the past uh, actually six years. Mm -hmm. um, we were kind of supporting them with some friends and family at first. And then now that they kind of moved, uh, we moved into to move mountains. Now they've been under our teacher training college. Mm -hmm. And so they're approaching their end of training. Mm -hmm. So the curriculum's going to finish. And the teachers will be trained. And now we're going to be building our first uh, school that will be the model for the rest of uh, the Nuba Mountains. Oh, that's amazing. So as, as far as like Nuba, like you're talking about, how big is that area in general? It's like the size of Massachusetts. Oh, it's quite um, large. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty big area. There's a population. They, I think they had a census in like 2010 and it's around a million people, just under a million people. Okay. Yeah, so it's a large, there's about 300 schools that were created by the community themselves. Um, so hopefully this curriculum we're building and the teacher training methods that will kind of like spread throughout those um, 300 schools, you know, it's very long term thinking. Right. And so they, they currently have existing schools and part of their need for education, like, was it just a change in the paradigm completely of the education that currently they currently had or, you know what I mean? Like, what, what was that? What does that look like? Something that keeps coming out in these conversations is that they never saw themselves in their education system. Mm -hmm. so, so like they would have names of people from the like um, the northern part of the country and they were always kind of um, the oppressed and marginalized groups. And so the education system was very much to try to make them a part of that identity. Okay. And so they never saw themselves in that education. The math, the science um, really didn't relate to their environment. It didn't really equal development for them. Um, so it's those kind of things that they wanted to see inside the, this uh, education system for themselves. And the schools, while there are many schools, um, they are, you know, they're all made out of grass and mud and rock. Um, mm -hmm. Kids sit on um, rocks inside the classroom. There's no desk. They're huddled over little pieces of paper, um, sitting on logs sometimes. And sometimes there's a blackboard, sometimes not. Wow. Um, teachers are there volunteering. Mo many of them don't have um, uh, like teacher training. Mm -hmm. um, they're just trying to, to help their communities. Um, so yeah, we want to come alongside of that hard work and, and help them out. Nice. Yeah, that, that sounds, wow. I mean, just the environment, right? And, and that's so progressive, that type of education as well. And you know, so it's, I mean, even here, I know we were talking about it. I'm, I'm here on the island of Guam and a lot mm -hmm. of what they're reading in schools is all about the United States and its U.S. curriculum. And they read about these places that does not make any sense to the climate or geography or cultures right. in this area. So it becomes very much like 
is that, or, you know, and it's all white people, you know, <laughs> so it's like, right, right. is, you know, like, is that better? Like, it, it's not, obviously it's not yeah. better, but it's kind of that, is it ingrained then for them to think about that? Um, you know, and it's just, it's, it's really, I know my mom's working, like I said, my mom's working hard too to, on her nonprofit mm. here to really assist with more culturally relevant education. And there's groups that are out there advocating for that. And I think it's time around the world, obviously internationally, I'm glad people, the people are stepping up and saying, this is what we want and we want it mm. to make more sense to us. So hats off to you guys and doing that and hats off to the Nuba people, uh, for really speaking their truth, you know, and design and oh, make thanks. it work. <laughs> yeah. Th thanks, Holly. I appreciate that. Yeah. They're, they're hardworking people and they're going to see it through and we'll just be right next to them trying to, trying to support in any way that we can. Yeah. So that comes down to amazing. But now, of course, like you had mentioned, there's huts, you know, there's made out of um, grass, there's rocks that the kids sit on. Obviously, there is a lack of resources in the area to make these um, more resources available or even make structures more comfortable. Um, but before we touch on that, is school free in Sudan in the Nuba area? Is that so in, in the Sudan constitution it's supposed to be free? Uh -huh. um, that's not the reality almost throughout the entirety of Sudan and especially the Nuba Mountains because they've been um, within this war zone for so long. They're really doing their own uh, thing kind of autonomously. Mm -hmm. So the only funding that the teachers get is from school fees. And a lot of times the school fees might be food. You know, the parents, it's, yeah. it's a big um, agricultural area. So the people farm, a lot of their farming is by hand and they farm a lot. Mm -hmm. um, when they're not being attacked or bombed or there's a drought. Right. Um, so what they do is they provide food mm -hmm. um, as a way of supporting their, their child in the school or supporting the school or supporting the teacher. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how, that's kind of how they pay. Sometimes they'll have cash and if they have cash, they're able, or they sell a goat, they'll be able to pay. But no, school is not free right now. This is the only way it can be sustainable. Wow. So, I mean, that makes a bigger divide too, right? And mm -hmm to for certain kids to be able to have an education or not so That's as right. far as that then like how do you guys get your funding then to really assist with this and are you also looking at facility upgrades or you know what I mean those types of things or maybe changing it so it's in different area a facility that might already be like more up to date and not used during the day or you know what I mean like are there kind mm -hmm. of what are your mm -hmm. efforts on that yeah, it's a good question. So um, as far as funding goes, I can explain maybe how, how we did the funding. And this is when I did the media organization as, uh, as well. So this is kind of maybe some of the advice that I could give for people kind of starting up. Um, once we could kind of prove what we were doing and that we had um, really good people that were passionate about the work we were doing, mm -hmm. then, you know, we would present small projects to mm -hmm. individual donors for small grants. And then we would always go back to them and we do a really good job of monitoring and evaluation on purpose to just say, hey, this is what we've, we were able to do. Take a look and we, and we would go through it. And um, I think that has really helped to continue funding yeah. whether that's for individual donors or grants. Yeah. And so um, that, has helped, that has kind of funded the, the curriculum development which is harder to raise money for because mm -hmm. it's very long-term thinking. A lot of times grants will want to just like, you know, do a quick, a quick project, you know, but we found a few Here. people that have been, <laughs> have been willing. Yeah. <laughs> so we found a few that have been willing to, they see the vision and, the, and yeah. they've really um, helped with that. And then they've introduced us to other possible um, grants as well. Mm -hmm. um, so where we're at now, and we have the teachers as well. And so the teachers that we're training are from all over Nuba. That was intentional. So they're from different tribes and different regions. And the, and the hope and desire is that we will have one school where we'll do everything that when it's finished, we, we, we model it and then we revise everything that we've done. And then when we've done the first revision, now we hope to spread these teachers now to different areas um, and start schools in those areas or to work with the school that's already existing. Um, we do want to upgrade the facilities. Mm -hmm. um, there is a lot of research that shows uh, a building built out of cement and block and a metal roof and just looks very different than the rest of the environment, um, brings a lot of motivation for people to send their kids to school. Wow. And it, it puts a, 
um, almost like a wellness kind of uh, in the child and motivation within the child that I am going to this, this building, you know, like it's, it's, this, it's a very practical way of just supporting motivation to, to learn mm-hmm. and to sit at a desk with mm-hmm. walls that have paint on them and see like a blackboard. Suddenly the child um, realizes that this is very important. And, and we see that children take it very seriously as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, so for our model, the, the parents and teachers will um, help build that, help build the school. So to me, that adds another element, right? Yeah. So they see, if children see their moms and dads and aunts and uncles coming out and everyone's working together to build these structures, mm-hmm. and we have some experts from to move mountains to, to help work and make sure the structures are sound, mm-hmm. um, then it just builds that motivation even more mm-hmm. and builds that ownership even more. Right, right. That, that's amazing. I could even imagine a lot of groups too. You know, I know a lot of like missionary groups and that sort of thing, like volunteers mm-hmm. who want to go and help with those kind of structures yep. as well too. So yeah, I mean, that's amazing. So as far as I'm, because obviously on grant writing and funding, we talk about grants, mm-hmm. like have mm-hmm. you seen success in, like you did mention you had gotten some smaller grants to kind of start and then like where are, is well, I guess before I get there, is to move mountains a 501c3 IRS US tax exempt organization? And are you also a Sudan nonprofit? Like, did you have to organize in the country as well? Okay, that's a good question. So, yes, we are a 501c3 registered in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, within Sudan, so there's a there's a group within the local regional government in Nuba. Um, that they uh, require any organization coming in to coordinate with them and register there. Mm-hmm. So we are registered with that um, government body mm-hmm. as an organization within the Nuba Mountains. We do not, because it's a conflict area, we do not have the ability to go to the capital and register there. So we are in this almost yes. semi-autonomous area, but that they have their own local government. And they're quite organized. They have commissioners and governors and a ministry of education, ministry of water. So we work closely with the ministry of education of the local of the region. And so they provide us with an MOU. We register with them locally. Um, but we are registered in the U.S. as a 501c3. Okay. So that um, obviously opens up more doors for you for a specific. That's rent. right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I, I would say one thing that we've had success in, especially in grant writing, mm-hmm. is I we're still very young and our organization, we have a lot of great experts in, um, in programming. Mm-hmm. As far as grant writing, we, we don't have a lot of people. I have experience in grant writing. And so what we've, um, a USAID grant, like a large USAID grant, are, are, are very hard to report on. It takes mm-hmm. a lot of like human capital to like just yes. put a lot of bandwidth to reporting on the kind of grant. But what we have realized is there's a lot of USAID contractors um, in Sudan, well, not a lot. There's, there's a, usually there's a, a bid given to one USAID contractor in Sudan, and so that USAID contractor then can can give um, smaller grants for smaller projects, and they're a lot easier to report on. Um, the the people are on the ground; they can come see the project, they can give advice. They have teams that also can give advice and and help support in the grant writing and reporting of that grant. Um, a lot of times these grants are even open up to local organizations. Mm-hmm. So there's several local organizations in the area. And really these smaller grants are meant to support those um, local organizations at their capacity. Right. Um, and, and so we've been able to also use that as well as some other organizations in the area. And mm-hmm. that has been extremely helpful. And okay. then, you know, they helped fund um, a conference that we had. Mm-hmm. And so that conference, then we come to go back to them and say, okay, you help fund this now. Here's the next stage. Would you be willing to fund this? And that's the process we're in right now. Okay. So that that's like your subcontracting kind of underneath these, these um, contractors that got the USAID larger contract and they subcontract out some of the work basically that, right? Yeah. Now. Yeah. And they have a mandate. Usually USAID will give them a mandate. Like I think of a few years ago, um, a mandate might be conflict mitigation. Right. And so they can, they can take on projects that deal with conflict mitigation. Um, so it's always, uh, you know, it depends on what their mandate is for that contractor. The contractor is usually like a for-profit company um, mm-hmm. and then they can distribute to nonprofits and local NGOs. Okay. okay. That makes sense. Um, and then you, I'm, I'm imagining you may have a lot of MOUs or agreements with the local organizations as well. Like you mentioned the ministry of education, but other local 
uh, maybe nonprofits or organizations too in the area that you work with or? Yeah, the way the way uh, it works in, in the area is that kind of the uh, this uh, government body kind of oversees the mitigation, I mean, the um, conversation between the regional and local leaders mm -hmm. um, to the work. And then we have an MOU with the Ministry of Education who also has MOUs with the other partners. Okay. And so we'll have regional meetings and, and discuss um, strategy. And so right now we're the only group that is working on like curriculum, mm -hmm. but we bring in these partners who are also doing education, like supporting the current education system. And we bring them in and we have discussions about how we can partner and work together through the Ministry of Education. Right, that's awesome. And then you, do you also get like, United Nation funds or EU funds, or there's other funds too, I know that go to certain areas in Africa that may not necessarily go to US-based organizations or, you know, like that are over there, but could go to you locally. Have you been able to tap into that or? So this has been um, something that has been actually very frustrating to me, Holly. Mm -hmm. So, and not just now, but even in the past. So we're in an area that has been under conflict. The people who have been attacking the new people is the government um, in the past. Right now, there hasn't been any fighting. Um, so that's, that's an answer to prayer. But the, because of that fighting, a lot of the funding comes through like the Global Education Fund, for, for example. Okay. Um, they had a huge grant to, to Sudan. Uh, the World Bank had a massive grant to Sudan on education. All that goes through the government. So um, in the past, there's the, the government who is attacking a group of people who are marginalized Mm -hmm. And that group of people, uh, the government has no motivation to educate people that they see as their enemy. Right. So then that funding doesn't become available to the most marginalized people. Right. Um, which is very frustrating because most, I think, uh, I, I don't know the numbers exactly, but a huge number of um, children out of school in the world are in conflict areas. Mm -hmm. And I think the result of that is because they don't have access to a lot of that, those aid funds. Right. that are coming into countries. Um, so that has been problematic. Mm -hmm. um, and also people, the, the trust issue, you mm -hmm. know, if you've been kind of attacked for a long time and then suddenly you're getting funding through a government entity, then that creates some trust issues. Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, in Sudan, things are, there's kind of ups and downs and there's been no fighting for a while. So we hope that that will clear up. Mm -hmm. um, but most of our other funding comes from um, independent foundations, mm -hmm. which have been very helpful, um, and then individuals as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm sorry to hear about that, but that does make sense, you know, and I think we see that worldwide in many different countries where there are marginalized people, right? And there is that dis dis uh, discrimination. I mean, even in the U.S., we see discrimination mm -hmm. um, on Native Americans, you know, on Blacks, like we see the disparity completely. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, but just even that's escalated because this is a war area. So I can understand that that would be very frustrating when these organizations or philanthropists may be intending to do so, so much good right. and not really yes. understanding. Yeah. I even saw that, you know, when I was working in Indonesia after the Asian tsunami and the area I was working in had been closed to foreigners for more than 50 years. And after that, you know, of course, they opened their gates and all of these United Nations organizations and different nonprofits came in mm -hmm. and they came in with money and rents went up like that for locals, you know, like yes. it like really disrupted a lot as well um, without meaning to. Right. So there's sort of that. We see that with nonprofits or with grants, sometimes all good intentions, but it can be disruptive in many different ways or not. Um, you know, there's a lot of disparity still with the funding. So thank you for eliminating us on that issue, especially with the new people. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I think um, that's why I would probably say with my, you know, years of experience in the international NGO mm -hmm. nonprofit world, I'm always an, a big advocate for ground up solutions. Yeah. Um, instead of top down, um, just because the people are going to solve those, those problems, at least, you know, process. I mentioned process before. I always think process is, is so important. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if we can help with process and then, and then dealing, um, culturally, what is appropriate for the process to take place, to equal success in any project. I think that is, um, that's something that I've really learned and how important it is over the past uh, 18 years. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So I love that you guys are looking at different ways too to get funding. So you mainly funded through grants and donors. Is that what would you say? Is that your main funding streams? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we are a faith-based organization. So with the individual donors, we do um, approach churches um, and, and people within churches. And that has been very helpful um, because it allows a platform for us to talk to many people. Um, and then the grant writing, um, you know, they, people have, uh, you know, we've done mainly smaller grants, mm -hmm. but we have a good handful of, of groups that have um, supported us now for a few years. So mm -hmm. they saw our work a long time ago and they maybe now that we've gone back to them and said, Hey, you saw our work here. And I, I mentioned earlier, like having a small project. And so they've been able to fund us a little bit more than the year previous year. And so, yes, that is, that has been our uh, main funding source. Nice. And do you have like ongoing donors or is it more through like campaigns, like, um, you know, like throughout, like we need funding for this specific thing, or is it like give monthly, they can give monthly and be a part of it, you know, kind of a thing. So how do you kind of look at the Yeah, we, as far as um, donors go, we really try to encourage uh, monthly donations. Mm -hmm. um, we really want people to be engaged in our work long-term because the, the results are long-term. Right. Um, we want people to see the change in the lives of, of the, the children that we're going to be um, working with um, very closely in their schools and in their homes. Mm -hmm. um, and even the teachers, like we want to uh, just for myself, knowing these teachers so personally and then seeing them, how they've grown over the past six years and who they are today is just um, it, it's amazing. And I think they've seen that that change as well. And mm -hmm. I want I want donors to be engaged in that. Like I, I would love talking to people to be like, hey look at look at Michael who has come a long way as a teacher when it when we brought him out of Nuba six years ago we trained him we brought him back and um and people get excited about that and um that makes me excited that people can see how um how their funding is is uh being used in a in a very important way and changing lives right um, so that's important to me yeah that is yeah and just to touch base again on I know you mentioned English language and that might be kind of like confusing to people yep. but I, I don't know exactly, but I thought I remember when South Sudan became its own country, English was actually one of their official languages. Is that true? And in the country itself, it's an it, it, is it an official language in Sudan as well? Am I so it was it was changed very recently. Um, so in in the Nuba Mountains, um, my wife actually kind of she's been a big inspiration for our work because of her just struggle for education. So originally it was Arabic. Mm -hmm. um, so the people were, uh, they felt like Arabic was uh, forcing an identity upon them. Mm -hmm. So they said, we want a, a language that was more neutral. So to them, English was more neutral and they felt like it was more international is how they would explain it. And so they shifted to English. And so my wife, for example, went to school through fourth grade in Arabic, and then she had to start over in English. Wow. Um, and that, and, but that's not for the whole country. That's just for that area of conflict. Okay. So the people just made that decision on their own and then they made the shift and they brought in teachers from Kenya and Uganda that could teach English. And that was years ago. Okay. Um, so that's kind of how it started. So now a lot of the young people in Nuba speak English, mm -hmm. but a lot of the people, you know, I'd say, you know, maybe 30 and older speak Arabic. Um, so you have this interesting kind of dynamic of language there. Um, mm -hmm. But even in the conference we had, we, we brought up this issue. We said, what do you want the system to be? Yeah. And they said, well, we want our, our mother tongue to be also taught as a subject yes. and Arabic to be taught as a subject, you know, um, but we, we want um, English to be the main uh, language of instruction. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So I just wanted to highlight on that because, you know, that could be a yeah. colonialism. So I like that. It's more of not looking at it in that aspect from the people themselves, but more of a, yes. a neutral ground. And I imagine too, with so many different language, like you mentioned, just in Nuba itself, it's nice to have one language of communication, right? So of yes. course, those different dialects might not be known to learn all of those. So they, they learn their own mother tongue and that whatever from that tribe and then English as well as a way to communicate with others. Is that, and they're really, are they really, um, like you said, they want the mother tongue to be a language of instruction as well, or not language of instruction, but one of the curriculum is or not sorry i'm saying this wrong yeah, yeah. one of the courses no, no you're, you're right you're right um so they would you know there's a lot of research that shows that when children learn their mother tongue first mm -hmm. 
then they learn a second language a lot easier right. because they learn the construction of sentences and these in their language. Right. And so when you translate that over to another language, it's it, so it kind of, it goes with their desire to have mother tongue in be taught in the younger years. And then um, it also goes with the research that later on when they say they want English um, now it'll transition a lot easier. Okay. Um, so that that's, it's really research driven. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, we really like that that model it is it is going to be a lot of work though yeah. i mean you know doing all these languages and how are we going to do it and some languages don't have written so we might have to do some hybrid thing where the teacher can use the mother tongue to help teach english or something like that and they also want arabic as a as a subject as well and mm -hmm. so i think that's that's very wise of them yeah especially if that's what their grandparents and parents you know are speaking as yep. well so that's really interesting. Oh, I love that though, just the different mix and then looking at the research as well. I remember one of my friends and he uh, spoke, I think it was Arabic to his child for that. He's like, no, until three years old or something, some age. And then it was like, yes. then, he spoke himself like three <laughs> languages. He's like, then we'll add on the next language. <laughs> and then like, wow. well, so when I hear that, Holly, I, I, I do feel guilty because uh, I, I mentioned my wife is from Nuba. And I speak Arabic, a very Nuban or Nuba dialect uh, or Sudanese dialect. And since we've moved back to the U.S. Uh, a few years ago, I have been horrible. We have only been speaking English in our in our, in our house. And I wish we spoke Jazeera. I know a little bit of my wife's mother tongue as well. And we have not done a good job of, oh, no. of talking to them. But we need to. We really need to. We usually talk in Arabic when we don't want the children to know what we're saying, but now they're starting to catch on. So that's good. That's good. They're catching on. <laughs> so you're actually not in Sudan right now. Sorry, we didn't bring this up yet, but you're in Nashville right now, just finishing up your master's degree, right, in education. And then you guys are actually going to be going back soon. So yes. that's been amazing. So that was a choice you guys made to go to the States to kind of yourselves get some education form the nonprofit do all of the paperwork on that side as well so how yeah, has that been being in the states yeah that's exactly right so i lived in sudan for 15 years my mm -hmm. wife is from there both my kids were born there mm -hmm. uh, i have a a, a nine-year-old and a six-year-old and they're both born in, in nuba and when we came back to the states it was quite jarring mm -hmm. um so <laughs> readjusting to life in america i left the u.s almost soon after I finished college. So I realized after I got back that I haven't really lived in my home country as an adult, like doing adult things. Nice. So I, it was, it was, yeah, it was quite a change. And then my, my kids, you know, kids are resilient and they can adjust easy, but it, it was kind of fun for them to see how they would adjust and change. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we, originally we came back um, to start the nonprofit and for my wife to finish university. Mm -hmm. um, she, you know, it's been her dream and desire, but because of war, she had to start, start, stop, start, stop. And so, uh, she, uh, was looking for schools and she wanted to do education because that, that was the work we we're doing and to support our work. And so we approached Vanderbilt university to even be a supporter of, to move mountains in a way to provide expertise and advice and, uh, staffing and mm -hmm. and they were they were so excited and and I can't say enough good things about the faculty there mm -hmm. um we we sat down with them and they said well Ryan you we also want you to go here and mm -hmm. I was like well I don't know if I have time <laughs> I'm starting a nonprofit, but in the end uh I was like okay let's let's do it and uh so I just graduated um last uh last semester Mm -hmm. And uh, it was the most amazing experience. I loved my education at Vanderbilt. I feel like at my age, going back to school with my experience, mm -hmm. I had so much to just rely on in the, in the work. And then my wife is also, um, I mean, I, I love hearing the conversations they have in class because her perspective mm -hmm. is so different. Um, and I think she's just gaining so much. So yeah, when she's finished in about a year, then we'll move back full time to, to oh. the Newport Mountain. Well, congratulations on that. Congratulations to your wife, you know, seem to be getting her degree as well. So that's absolutely amazing. Yeah, I've heard great things about Vanderbilt as well. Like I said, I was in Nashville just for a short, short, short time. But um, mm -hmm. I knew I met some people that went there and um, even connecting me to the university there. Just, yeah, like you said, the faculty is amazing. 
And that just gives me another idea for you guys out there to be listening to this because that's also another resource our universities. If you're doing a nonprofit, a lot of times faculty need to do certain types of research and they want to work with your nonprofit or support it in different ways. So has Vanderbilt, what kind of support have they given to your nonprofit? Yeah, you mentioned classes and doing research and stuff. So there, there's a few classes that we partnered with, mm -hmm. uh, even after I graduated. Um, so we, to move mountains, um, came to the class, a certain class, and um, we there was a class about projects and evaluation in the human organizational development department. And um, so we explained what we were doing and something that we wanted to evaluate and, and see how we were doing this, this process and if it was going well. And so the class of grad students kind of worked alongside me and we graded, graded this uh, great evaluation program and the professor kind of like helped give her advice and thoughts. And it was just very engaging. Um, and we've had several instances like that. So that's one thing. The other thing is um, a very good friend of mine, Patrick Sherman, who is a professor at Vanderbilt, um, who, he became my good friend. Mm -hmm. And he kind of brought together these faculty that have done different international work and education work and that have different specialties. You know, mm -hmm. we have someone that uh, has a specialty in uh, social emotional learning mm -hmm. and someone who teacher training and education policy mm -hmm. and evaluation. And so we, we, it's almost like an advisory board. So we'll bring to them ideas and thoughts and they'll give us their feedback, resources, networks, um, really, really, really helpful. Um, and so they picked up and they filled in a lot of gaps that we had. That's amazing. Do you do you get any interns as well from there or? Yeah, that's a that's a good point too. Yes, we have gotten quite a few interns from there that have been that have been very helpful. Um, and the the College of uh, the Peabody College of Education, mm -hmm. they have a lot of great programs. So a lot of good interns uh, joining our work. Oh, that's amazing. So and then you guys will be going back to Sudan and the, uh, settling back there again once you're finished. So how does that work then when you're gonna bring the nonprofit, obviously the nonprofit's already in Sudan working, um, but you guys are kind of just overseeing it from the States or do you fly back and forth or you know, how does that kind of work? Yeah, so my, I, you know, I gotta be a little flexible yeah. about what, how it looks in the future. Um, mm -hmm. My ideal situation was over the next year, year and a half, we build a small core team here in the US, uh, preferably based in Nashville to kind of run some of that administrative work and fundraising and grant writing um, and bring them over occasionally. When, I, when we're there, it's a lot easier and bring them over to Nuba and see the work and report on the work, um, but mainly based here in the US to like kind of see that, that work move forward. I always see myself as an implementer. Um, mm -hmm. So I would love a team to just be here to support us, um, but we'll see, you know, that might take time. You know, at first it might be, mean me coming back here every every few months and, and uh, developing that team and working with that team uh, or bringing people from here to there to get the experience and understand uh, the environment that we're working in. Right. Um, but that's the hope. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And then um, as far as like COVID, then is that another issue that has really affected that region? Um, so it hasn't, the, the Nuba Mountains haven't had too many COVID cases. It's actually more recently that they've seen COVID in the area. There is one hospital um, that has a surgeon, and then there's some other clinics um, that are working in the area, and they just now started seeing COVID. So it's oh. kind of blocked off. Um, but now I think um, it's reached there. Um, not as bad as other places because everything is very spread out. Most things are outside. So it hasn't been so bad for that. But I would say the biggest hurdle that we've had is being able to travel there. Yeah. Um, so, so just the extra restrictions and especially right now, like all these new restrictions, um, it's becoming a bit difficult um, well, it's not becoming difficult. There are times in which it's, we have to be like, okay, we can't go now. Let's delay to this time. And then we'll go and spend time training teachers there, do curriculum work and then come back. Um, so that's been kind of our model. Now we spend a month there, come back, regroup, work on a bunch of, um, uh, teacher development and curriculum work and then go back there. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah I was going to, yeah, it's hard to international travel. Right. I mean, even from mm -hmm. here on Guam, now we can't go through Japan, which a lot of international flights go through Japan, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's um, yeah, it's become interesting to see, but I would imagine, you know, in Sudan, especially, you know, with the disparity, of course, of vaccines too, and reaching those areas 
might be very difficult as well. So um, that's, that's true. I don't know how, I mean, I think the vaccine, the vaccines that are even available are extremely low. Yeah. Yeah. That's in that true. area. Mm -hmm. Well, it's good though, that you guys are able to still be able to find windows of time to go there and to continue the work um, as well on the back end, you know, while you're in school and while you're, you know, getting the resources that you can and continuing your work. So for people to want to find you, you're definitely at www.tomovemountains.org. Um, so mm -hmm. people can definitely see what you're doing more in depth there and really get a visual of all the things. You guys have a beautiful website. I think important that's very important so people can really see the work that you're doing um mm -hmm. but did you want to touch on anything else uh, before we sign off today sure i mean if people want to see we got some amazing visuals of just what's taking place in new it's a beautiful place they can see our social media um you know at to move mtns and so if they wanted to see some photos from the area um, they could follow us there um, we are working to raise money for the first school, which is, nice. I'm very excited about Holly, yes. um, because it's like the first place we're going to have the new curriculum and the new teachers and the new school. And, and so that's very exciting to me. And so we're, we're doing that now if people want to support, but, uh, I really appreciate you having us on, um, you do great work and I know you're giving a lot of great advice to, um, nonprofits that need it. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. And it's been such an honor. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, reaching out to us. And I was really excited when I saw what you guys are doing. So thank you for all the work that you do. And of course, um, an extended thanks and gratitude to the Nuba people for everything they've been through and just for the resiliency and continuing to really break the systemic issues that are, you know, causing marginalization. So I think that's just mm -hmm. so tremendous. And my hat's off completely to them and to your wife. Um, so yes, um, and to you. So thank you so much again for coming on the show. We'll definitely have all of the links in the show notes and also on the YouTube channel below. We'll have that. So um, definitely uh, do tune in and check out tomovemountains.org. Thank you again, Brian, for being on the show. We appreciate you. And hopefully Thanks, you'll come back soon. Yes. Definitely. Right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast with Mr. Ryan Boyette of the nonprofit To Move Mountains. I hope you enjoyed listening to this powerful episode. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the, uh, the podcast, if you love the podcast, please make sure you subscribe and you join our hub haven at grantwritingandfunding.com. Also, if you want to do me an extra favor, please leave a review on iTunes or your podcast listener about how much you love the podcast, as that helps um, with a lot of feedback, and you never know, we might read your review on air. All right, guys, I will see you next week as we have another powerful and wonderful guest coming on the show to talk about your accounting books. Oh yeah, we're going to get in the fiscal accountability section of how to manage those brands, all of the things in QuickBooks and accounting. You definitely want to tune in for that episode. As I have also been getting a lot of people asking me about uh, more about how to do your accounting for nonprofits, especially when you're starting to get grants. All right, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.